welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. <laughs> and our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tesuetmuk territory within the unceded traditional lands of Suetmukulu. As settlers, we take seriously our responsibility to center and uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. And Joe, uh huh, we actually get to talk about Indigenous literature today. Yes, I feel like we've been waiting for this forever. Somebody actually spent some like serious, decent money on an adaptation of an Indigenous YA. Yeah, big bucks by the looks of this TV show, which is very visually impressive. Yes, so today we're talking about Son of a Trickster by Eden Robinson and the CBC adaptation that I think the first episode comes out tomorrow? I have no idea. Yeah, yes, no. it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. You're good. On the CBC. So yay, so exciting. <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited because we have had the chance to see four of the six episodes of Trickster. So we don't know how it ends, but no. we do know a good part of the middle and beginning. And we do know it looks amazing. Yeah. Yes. So I'm very excited to talk about Trickster and Son yes. of a Trickster. Yes, I am too. So Son of a Trickster is a 2017 uh, novel by Eden Robinson. It's actually the first book of a trilogy. I think only the second book in the trilogy is out, though. I think Trickster Drift came out maybe last year. Right. And there's one more that's, I think, scheduled to come out in March. Oh, okay. Yeah. So apparently they've only secured the rights to Son of a Trickster for the series. So it'll be interesting to see what happens if the series is as successful as I hope it is. Mm-hmm. I was saying to Joe that I'm nervous about doing the plot today because I read the book two weeks ago and I really loved it. But then I just devoured the TV series in two days and they're very they're different. Very different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can definitely see the connective threads. Like yes. I actually think the adaptation is quite good, mm -hmm. but it's also not at all a literal adaptation. No, I think there's only one real misstep in the choice that they make around uh, one of the characters, which we'll talk about when we get to the adaptation. But otherwise, I really think it's well done. And I think it makes some very clever cinematic choices. The book is a super slow burn. Like, yes. you don't really get to the major reveals until quite late in the mm -hmm. book. And if they had tried that with the TV show, it wouldn't have worked. No, yeah. I think they've made some very smart adaptation decisions, if only because... You've got to hook your TV audience a lot earlier because mm -hmm. they're not just picking up the book with the intention of reading the whole thing, right? They're coming in with an expectation of, okay, you've got 42 minutes. Yes. Grab me or lose me. Exactly. It's worth mentioning, too, that this book was one of the 2020 selections for Canada Reads, which for our non-Canadian listeners is our annual reality show slash fight club <laughs> about books. Right. Yeah. It's a weirdo country we live in, Joe. <laughs> people get to pick a champion and then that champion goes to bat for a particular text and it's usually what six books or eight books or something yeah i think it's six i think you're right about six and then they kind of battle it out with public debates written debates and uh, then ultimately one is crowned a champion but typically all of the books end up getting a huge publicity boost out of it so yes in fact, when Douglas Copeland's Generation X was selected for Canada Reads, I think in 2008, 
maybe nine. Anyway, he, I interviewed him when I was working on him on my for my dissertation, and he said right. that um, the only reason he agreed to it was that Generation X he made basically no money off that because it was his first book, and it was mm. he did not deliver the book that the publisher had expected. It was supposed to be a photo book. There was a whole thing, mm. so he made like no money. So the reason he did Canada Reads was to basically renegotiate his rights to the book and get more money for it. Clever. He was very honest about it. I mean, here's the reality, right? Like, people aren't going into either television or publishing for the money. No. If you can make a little bit of money, if you can do it as a full-time gig, I mean, you have kind of struck gold. But yeah. the sad reality is that a lot of our creatives are not getting rich off of these projects. So you got to work that hustle in any way that you can. Well, and it's one of those things, too, that like that book sold so many copies. Like, it was a top five bestseller for like three years in the 90s and so the idea that he made no money out of it like yeah you go go get paid son <laughs> <laughs> but maybe let's turn our attention back to the indigenous text at the yeah, center sure. of our you don't discussion. want to just center a white man in this conversation <laughs> not so much it's making me a little uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm gonna try to do my plot summary and joe please feel free to jump in because it is a big sprawling novel yes it's quite long and quite involved, so it's very possible I'm going to miss some stuff. But let me try to hit the high points, and then you can fill in what I miss. Sounds good. So Son of a Trickster is the story of Jared. Jared is in the book 14, and he's struggling a bit with his <laughs> life circumstances. His life is a bit of a hot garbage fire. Yes, yes, it is. His mom is... I don't know, it's like not super present, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and Yeah, uh, she's prone to alcohol abuse and drug abuse, yeah. and she also disappears for long stretches of time. Yeah, and what we discover sort of slowly over the course of the book is that she's, at least in part, trying to medicate her own demons. Uh, right. Metaphorical and literal. A lot of that in this book. Yeah, yes. And so, you know, his mom's kind of absent. She's had a series of bad boyfriends, and her current bad boyfriend is probably, like, the least bad of all the bad boyfriends. He's only tried to kill Jared the one time, which is a pretty <laughs> pretty good record for her boyfriends. Um, and his dad is... His dad was once, like, super together dude, but he's been sort of struck down by first an injury and then opiate addiction mm -hmm. and... Jared, Jared's just trying to hold it all together. So he pays his mom's bills. He lends slash gives his dad money for bills. Yep. He's very much the adult in both those situations. Mm -hmm. He's got a stepsister who's pregnant. And yes. he ends up having to take care of her as well. Like, it's crazy to think that he is the responsible slash adult figure in pretty much everyone's lives. And you just keep reminding yourself, this is barely a teenage boy yes yes and it's important like he is only 14 and the things that he's going through are kind of wild and so you might be wondering like how does a 14 year old boy pay the bills and at least in some in some ways he's just sort of managing his mom's money like getting stuff paid for her but he's right. also when he needs money badly he's making pot cookies and selling them at the school bake sale <laughs> Cookie Man. Cookie Man. I kind of love that whole plot line. But even that, of course, is not without risks. He ends up rolled at one point and all his money and drugs taken. Things are hard for Jared. Yeah. And I don't know that I would say it's a content warning, but this is not an easy book, no. particularly if you are sensitive to like drug and alcohol abuse and even like the abuse of a minor at the hands yeah. of every adult in their lives. 
Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of child abuse in this book. And um, one of the sort of moments in Jared's life that recurs that we keep coming back to is this incident that happened between him and his mom's last boyfriend, where he beat him very nearly to death. Yes. And in a disturbing twist, this dude was also like sexually aroused by the experience of harming Jared. Mm-hmm. And his mother comes to his physical defense, but she can't ever sort of talk about it or deal with the ramifications. And so Jared's on his own, sort of physically, financially, emotionally. He's really kind of managing his own way through the world. Yes. There's a neighbor girl. The family next door, they're senior citizens. They're a couple. And Mrs. Jax is indigenous and has some sort of spiritual connection to Jared. The night that he's beaten quite badly, she spiritually kind of rescues him out of that moment yeah she like takes his spirit out of his body to protect him mm-hmm. and so he has always done things for the family next door which his mom is pretty jealous about like he'll you know help them around the house and and care for them and his mom doesn't cope with a sense of disloyalty very well she yeah she's very sensitive to feeling as though she has been betrayed by jared and so he's always kind of constantly walking this line Mm -hmm. And then their granddaughter moves in with them. And Jared starts a romantic relationship, which his mom really doesn't like. Yes. (laughs) But the background of all of this is like, Jared keeps seeing things. Yeah, He's got some crows that talk to him. He's seeing weird things shifting under people's faces when he hitchhikes sometimes. He sees fireflies around the neighbor girl. (laughs) Are you just going to not name her? Is it Sarah? It's Sarah. Oh, okay, then. (laughs) He's fireflies around Sarah. Um, So there's, there are all these sort of magical happenstances happening around him. Yes. And he questions his own sanity. So he stops taking drugs for a while. He stops drinking. None of that ever lasts for particularly very long. No. He does have a pal he confides in. Crash Pad. Crash Pad. Yeah, Crash Pad, who's like this... Nerdy guy, plays a lot of video games. He's like the only stable, kind of like emotionally flat, but in a good way, character in this entire book. Yes. Because Jared also has relationships with other kids at school who use him for their own while. So he's in a very unusual friendship with Dylan, who is a hockey player who lives on the res. And he sometimes bakes with Dylan's girlfriend slash Mm ex-girlfriend Ebony and they're very popular so it's a bit of a weird circumstance but like Crash Pad also lives right next to Dylan and Mm -hmm. is this beacon of simplicity and domesticity like whenever Jared needs a time out he can go and just play video games with Crash Pad. Yes and I love the crassing of Crash Pad by the way in the tv series I think he's great. Oh it's great yeah. yeah. And yeah so I don't know. We haven't really talked about the dad which is Kind oh, of like yeah. the important character. Yeah, I know. Well, it's because in the book he doesn't, I mean, in the film, in, in the TV show, he's there from episode one. But in the book, he's like... He's kind of a blip, right? It's a blip. So important to know that in the book, the grandparents are sort of absent or held at a distance. So mm-hmm. on Jared's mother's side, basically the book opens when he's a boy and his grandmother on his mom's side says... That's not a human being. Yeah. You need to keep an eye on that. That's a Ouijit, which is a trickster. Yes. And that's part of the reason why they moved to Kitimat away from the grandmother, because his mom is not having any of that. And then the grandmother on his dad's side. Nana Sophia. Nana Sophia. She (laughs) has 
marry Rich. Yeah. If Jared needs an escape, he can message her and she will gladly take him in and all of his problems will be solved. But it's the nuclear option as far as his relationship with his mom is concerned. Yes, like you could, he could never come back. He would have to walk away from all of the relationships in his life. And he's just not prepared to do that because he has a very codependent and frankly unhealthy relationship with his mother. I love the relationship and the complications, but it's like... It's not good for either of them. The social caseworker in me was like, Agah! But it's important that these two grandparent figures Mm -hmm. are at a distance because there's this vacuum and it has everything to do with who his true father is. So his dad, shocker, not actually his dad. Mm -hmm. His mom had an affair with a trickster who in indigenous lore is... It's interesting. I've never seen the trickster depicted this way. I've always seen them as a very literal trickster, like somebody who cannot be trusted and they will play games with you. What's interesting about the multiplicity of Indigenous stories that we're now seeing being published and being elevated like this um, is that we get to recognize the diversity of experiences within Indigenous cultures, plural. Right. And so my understanding that this is a particularly Heisla depiction of trickster. Okay. And that Heisla trickster is much more of a potentially sinister but also this notion of balance and like you have to have these dark presences in order to have like the presence of light and stuff right okay and so not only then does jared discover that his father is trickster but his mother is a witch and so the question at the end of the book is what is jared the tv show is a lot more like well jared's a trickster (laughs) (laughs) but at the end of the book we're left with like what does happen when a witch and a trickster have a baby? Yeah. Has this ever happened before? Do we have any context for this? Right. Yeah. That's why he's the center of this YA narrative, right? Because mm-hmm. he is kind of the magical chosen one. Mm-hmm. To such an extent that I actually saw a couple of different reviews from noticeably white folks mm. talking about how this is like an indigenous Harry Potter to which Ooh. I threw up in my mouth. Oh, it's First of all, it's extremely well written. <laughs> Can we start there? Like, um, I was just like, these are defining tropes of yeah. YA, but to suggest, A, that everything should be linked back to Harry Potter simply because it's the biggest text in YA is like, do your homework. Mm-hmm. And B, I think it's so problematic to assign settler influence. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well, this is where this indigenous story that is probably thousands of years old is now being filtered through. Like, mm, yeah. Or Harry Potter f- came from. Oh, I have to bleep <laughs> that out. Or Harry Potter came from this and derived from these kinds of indigenous stories that have been circulating orally for hundreds or if not thousands of years. It's particularly troubling after Rowling's sort of tiptoe into indigenous storytelling with that witches of north america thing the fantastic beast nonsense well yeah but wasn't there also like part of her video game world or something she oh, released some couldn't care long form essay about what magic looked like in north america and it was apparently extremely offensive oh shocker hmm. uh, yeah it's troubling to me and i think too it's funny i was saying before we started poor joe i was trying to find the source and i can't so i'm just gonna talk off the top of my head but <laughs> i've read several pieces you know eden robinson's work has been around for a long time she's been writing for a while and she is often analyzed in canadian literature 
through this lens of like magical realism. Yeah. The same kind of perspective that gets used when people critique like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Latin American writers, right? Sort of using that same lens. And I've read Eden Robinson's response to some of those readings, which is you telling me that this is quote unquote magical realism is a Western lens on an indigenous perspective. It's a settler lens on, on an indigenous worldview. She's like, I don't think there's anything remarkable about recognizing the blend of magic and the real in the world. Like, I don't think that's a remarkable thing. And and your kind of obsession with like, ooh, look at this magic here mm-hmm. is a misreading of what, she, what she's actually trying to do, which is recognize the interplay of the magical and the real, right? Yeah. And that to me is super fascinating because if you've read this book, like I went into this thinking this is going to be about... Oh, just looking back on two weeks ago, me. So dumb. (laughs) Magical indigenous people. I'm really excited for this. Because I love the idea of trying to blend the supernatural into Mm -hmm. like indigenous culture. Because I think particularly as a settler, we often look at the way that myths and storytelling is presented. Like it's very distinct from the way that we typically look at our history, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm Mm -hmm. speaking like settler history. So I think it's something of a fascination in a way that could very easily and dangerously veer into a tokenistic, I'm fascinated by this, give me that jade jewelry kind of way. What I came to realize in reading the book is that I really was frustrated by the first half of it because I was like, this is a lot of just trauma and abuse and the kinds of things that I had previously regarded as stereotypes of indigenous culture. Like, it was really hard. And I was like, well, where's the supernatural stuff? I wanted the supernatural stuff. (laughs) And then it was like, when you get to the end, where all that supernatural stuff has really ramped up and almost overtaken some of the reality, I got a much greater appreciation for what Eden Robinson is trying to do. She's not blending the two of these. They are forces that are constantly Mm -hmm. intermingling and interplaying. And it just reinforced, like, I went into this with a very colonial settler vision of how Mm -hmm. this was going to unfold. And Eden Robinson was like, well, I'm going to tell it to you the way that I want to do this. Yeah. Yeah, I suspect this book would really benefit from a reread. Like, I bet on a reread you would see more of those magic interventions earlier in the text. Because I was realizing as I was watching the show that there were moments in the book that I had glossed over because I didn't know what to be like sort of quote unquote looking for, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. I just found a quote from Eden Robinson about the trickster and how the trickster functions in Heisla culture. Okay. She says, he's a transforming raven, and he has a very specific role in our culture. We tell our children we get stories to teach them about protocol or nuyam, but he teaches people this protocol by breaking all the rules. He's the bad example, the example of what not to do. And so it's really interesting. And she talks about how his stories are always funny, and he's a lively character. And I guess, apparently, Son of a Trickster started as a 10-page short story. (laughs) Oh, wow. And now it's a three-book trilogy. Now it's a three-book trilogy, yeah. Because she had had tried to write it from Trickster's perspective. Oh. And she said, Hmm. when you try to write a story from the perspective of Trickster, it's just super braggy. It's like having Sherlock Holmes (laughs) tell his own story. Like, it's not. (laughs) Right? Well, I think that's a harder entry point, too, right? Like, Jared is so relatable in a lot of ways. Like, he's a very empathetic figure. And I think that's one of the things that is 
it's so easy to overlook, and yet it's paramount to the success of this book, which is that you have to be able to relate to Jared and his experiences. Otherwise, it just becomes kind of trauma porn. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Because he's super funny. He's super he's so funny. funny. I know. That the darkest moments, I was like, thank God you've got a sense of humor, because I would just be crying all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he's really, really good. He's really good for that reason. Like, I think that he's compelling because you want him to succeed, of course, in a really yes. traditional kind of underdog story, but also because you kind of want to see what mess he's going to get into next, right? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's always a new adventure. Oh, are those were otters? <laughs> <laughs> I love the were otters. <gasps> this story takes some decidedly shocking turns, like places I was not expecting this book to go. I have decided that I have found the horror thriller genre that I'm interested in, and it's indigenous horror. Because I've actually read a mm. few sort of, well, at least indigenous gothics in the last little while. And right. like, this is a version of those tropes that I'm actually really interested in. Yeah. No, I can see that. I mean, I don't know. How do we talk about that? Is it that they're less focused on the gore and the scares? Yeah, maybe. Or that the gore and the scares are very explicitly in the service of character like character seems to be primary i don't know i i was reading a really interesting twitter thread and i'm being that who can't remember who wrote the twitter thread now but they were talking about how and it comes back to what you were saying about like indigenous harry potter like yeah. writers of color and marginalized writers tend to be disproportionately punished for using tropes oh of course yeah things that are seen as oh just part of the genre when a white person does it are like mm -hmm. sort of reframed as derivative when a person of color does it. Yeah, like why can't they come up with their own stories? And you're just like, who is the they that you're speaking <laughs> of? Gah! Yes. And this Twitter thread writer was challenging readers to do better in the way they interact with tropes when they're being used by people from mm. marginalized, historically marginalized in publishing backgrounds because her point was like, odds are they aren't using it in a surface way. Like odds are they are using it to make some sort of larger commentary because they're drawing in these pieces that they know they're going to be disproportionately criticized for using. And so it was really interesting because then I started to think about like the way the tropes of YA get used in Son of a Trickster and how, how much more compelling I find Jared than I would find, I don't know, a comparable whiny white boy that we've met so many of. Yeah, I think if for no other reason than even though there's so many elements that do feel quote unquote derivative or familiar in this story, I don't know, like there's something about this book that feels simultaneously familiar and yet also very fresh. Mm -hmm. And again, mm -hmm. I think that's primarily coming from my perspective as a colonial settler because I'm just not as familiar with some of these stories. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Uh, shall we transition over to the show yeah it's actually a good timing because i was just gonna say you know one of the things that i found really interesting as just an affective experience as a watcher of the show was just to be submersed in a world where most of the characters are not white right mm -hmm. and how simultaneously fresh that made everything happening on the screen and also how ridiculous it is that it's 2020 and the last time i remember watching an indigenous focused tv series was like the res in 1996 on cbc so we need to do better but let's talk about the movie <laughs> jared 
Your life belongs to no one but you. Just think what you could do if you actually applied yourself. Hi, welcome to the Tasty Bucket. Can I take an order, please? Extra salty fries. So it's interesting that you brought up this idea that it's so unusual to see an almost entirely non-white cast because I've been grappling this watching the HBO series Lovecraft Country and Mm. I have a couple of issues with that show. People can listen to me talk about it on my other podcast, but one of the things that's really struck me is just the pleasure that Black viewers in particular are getting out of their stories being told in a respectful, meaningful, well-done fashion. And I think that's one of the important things to bear in mind, like kind of comes back to the Twitter thread that you were mentioning, which is like, we need to challenge ourselves as readers and viewers and think about our positionality, right? Mm -hmm. Because my default when I was watching the TV show It's adapted by Michelle Latimer, and she has made a couple of really well-received documentaries. She's made some very deliberate creative decisions, but between the source material and the TV show, I was watching this through my white, white eyes, Mm -hmm. thinking about how my 75-year-old father, who is highly critical of everything the CBC does, Mm -hmm. he's almost conservative, and yet he still has, like, a lot of progressive values, but, like, particularly with regards to Indigenous stories and Indigenous people, he has no time for any Mm -hmm. of it. Mm. He's very much embedded in the stereotypical perspective of like, oh, X, Y, and Z when it comes to these people. And I'm using scare quotes. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking like this series through a particular lens, if you were looking at it uncritically, would reinforce all of those beliefs, right? Mm. Because we're talking about trauma, we're talking about abuse, we're talking about alcohol and drug dependency, we're talking about poverty, uh, we're talking about teenagers being left to their own devices. It's really reinforcing all of those ideas, but it's simultaneously not. It's acknowledging the realities, but that's also not the story. Well, it's also like, again, we come back to this The problem with not having enough stories that make it to this position because of the ways in which marginalized creators are kept at the margins Mm -hmm. is that like, I mean, do you watch Breaking Bad and go, oh, white people really got to get it together? Like, holy crap, what is going on with white people? How come they're all (laughs) cooking meth in the desert? Like, no, this is one story. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that is something... We have talked about before when we've talked about the preponderance of of trauma in the trans narratives that make it big or popular. And I think the same is often true in the the stories about indigenous culture that white people want to read. Like, Mm -hmm. I think this is one of those places where the dominant culture has really got to ask some questions about what it's willing to spend money on. Uh Uh-huh. 
And yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we should acknowledge a couple of things right out the top. Mm-hmm. So Michelle Latimer had to fight yes. to be the person who made this adaptation. So Eden Robinson, it's a very popular book. She sold the rights. And one of the issues was Michelle Latimer kept seeing these prominent indigenous texts being sold off to the highest bidder, mm-hmm. aka white folks, because mm-hmm. they're the ones with all the money. Mm-hmm. So she ended up getting a producing partner and they made a pitch. And the pitch was basically, for the love of God, would you please let indigenous people tell the story so we can do it right? Mm-hmm just mad respect right off the top for that Mm -hmm. because it's like yeah you know what this would look very different in the hands of somebody else which is not to say that it would necessarily be worse it probably would but (laughs) this is such an indigenous story why would you not trust it to an indigenous creative right do you know the story of dance me outside i do not okay so dance me outside was a film that came out in i think 95 maybe 96 Mm -hmm. and it's a bruce mcdonald film yeah yeah And it's based on a short story by W.P. Kinsella. And it takes place on a reserve, and it's all about Indigenous teenagers. And the W.P. Kinsella short story is from what he called his Frank Fence Post Chronicles, which were very popular stories about Indigenous life. Okay. They entirely come from, like, a series of conversations he had with a cab driver in Winnipeg. Like, Hmm. he had never been to a reserve. He had never interacted with Indigenous people. He just And he writes them all in, like, his version of dialect. No. Mm. No. Oh, Mm. this is bad. Mm, They're uncomfortable. So Dance Me Outside gets adapted by Bruce McDonald, another white dude. Yep. And what was interesting about the adaptation process is that... Basically, the first script, my understanding is basically the first script was like kind of just a placeholder. And the idea was that the entirely indigenous cast was given a lot of free reign to revise dialogue and like adapt. So it was a bit more of a collaborative process. So it was a little bit more collaborative. Yeah. And then the CBC bought the rights to Dance Me Outside as a TV show, which then had indigenous producers and directors. Hmm. And... The Res is better than Dance Me Outside, which is better than the Frank Fence Post Chronicles. Like, just in terms of storytelling and in terms of the characters feeling... Authentic. Authentic and lived in and honest. And I just think it's a really great story about how allowing the people you're representing, whoever they are, to explore their own stories is always going to lead to a richer final product. Yeah. All other things being equal. I think we're very lucky that Michelle Latimer was able to advocate for herself and her creative Mm -hmm. vision Mm -hmm. because there's a historical precedent that this would have gone to some white person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the best case scenarios is what we got. Mm -hmm. But the likelier reality is that we're going to continue to see other people telling the stories of people that they are maybe not a member of that community. It doesn't mean that they're going to do it horribly. They may. But... If they make efforts to consult, to hire people, to work with them, to pay people Mm -hmm. to help them augment that vision, you can still get something valuable out of it. Would it be stronger if it was always people telling their own authentic stories? Probably. It doesn't mean that we can't have these other people, but they need to do better. So like, you can't just write about a conversation you had with a cab driver and say, well, I did my responsibility. (laughs) No. Put in the work. Do the time. Yeah, it's interesting. So both Jennifer and Tamara Pademski came, at least in part, out of that 
experience with the res. So they were both in Dance Me Outside and they both worked on the res. And I think that they've both talked about this experience of like collaboration and then almost like apprenticeship and Mm -hmm. then taking the reins themselves. I'm pretty sure... mm, can't remember. I think it's Jennifer Podemsky who's the producer now. Yes, yes, it is. And she did a certain amount of that work on the res. And I think at some point, reconciliation in particular, like not even thinking about the broader conversation of diversity, but thinking about the specifically settler state necessity of reconciliation requires white people to step back, right? Like, mm-hmm. um to first help and amplify and then at a certain point shut up (laughs) and that's really uncomfortable right because yes the whole idea of the way we conceive of art culturally is that it can't or shouldn't be quote-unquote censored or quote-unquote dictated to at the same time if when we say we want change we are being honest Mm. then eventually someone's gotta make the change right Yeah. um, The thing is, is that this is all to do with uncomfortability, right? Yeah. This is all about opportunities to exact change. And for a lot of people, that means relinquishing power. And that makes people very uncomfortable, particularly if you're the person who's always had that power, right? Mm -hmm. I like to think that as we move forward as a society, and you know, there's a diversity of outlets, like, to be honest, I don't think Trickster would have ever gotten made as a film. But there was an opportunity to make this as a serialized television show, which, Mm -hmm. A, I think is a better strategy. Well, especially for such a sprawling novel, right? Yes. Yeah. But they probably were able to, they being CBC, Mm -hmm. were probably able to justify looking at this as a different kind of investment. Mm -hmm. You can sell a TV show in a different way than you can a movie. There's different kinds of expectations. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're seeing is the interplay between creative decisions, financial considerations, and then whatever you want to call the kind of new socialized world that we're living in. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the three points of the triangle. Mm. You can reconcile one, but it's really difficult to then start to make changes to the other ones because Mm. really it means certain people are going to lose power or you need to start thinking about other people in a different way that you were Mm. uncomfortable with before. Mm. Yeah. Specifically thinking about this TV show, like we've we've talked around it. We yeah, haven't actually say, talked you know, about haven't how done, it is. We haven't talked about like the creatives or, or the actors <laughs> or anything. So yeah. I'm going to shut up and let you do that. Okay. <laughs> so this is directed all six episodes by Michelle Latimer. Basically, this is her baby. Mm-hmm. This is her creative vision. And then she's brought in a couple of other people. So there's other writers on this. Tony Elliott, Penny Gummerson, mm-hmm. and Zoe Lee Hopkins. And then we've got pretty much an entirely indigenous cast except for phil mm-hmm. <laughs> so oh no phil's phil's indigenous is he yeah craig Lazone. he's from ottawa he's ojibwe okay cool mm-hmm. yeah so joel ouellette plays jared he is the centerpiece around which everything else in the series revolves his mother maggie is played by crystal lightning mm-hmm. his father quote-unquote <laughs> <laughs> is, as you said, played by Craig Luzon. And then his real father, Wade, mm-hmm. is played by Kalani Kwepo. Mm-hmm. And Sarah, in the TV version, so we probably should have prefaced this as well, the TV mm-hmm. show is quite different. Very different. 
it's taking a lot of the essence of the book, but it's expediting some of the supernatural elements. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they're much more intertwined, but even the nature of those is quite different, mm -hmm. I would say. So in this one, Sarah is actually not a witch as she is in the book. She's... So far. So far. I mean, she's got something. She's it's got like something. lightning in a bottle with the two of them, right? And yeah. you have to think that she helps to activate something in Jared and vice versa. Yeah. And she is played by actress Anna Lamb. I think a more significant difference is that the family she lives with is still the Jacks, but she's their foster yes. daughter. And um, she anticipates it being a short-term stay because she's on a quest to find her, her biological family. Mm -hmm. And Jared doesn't have a relationship with the Jacks, which no. changes sort of his support network as well. Very dramatically. Yeah, because mm -hmm. he doesn't have the same kind of escape anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. He also doesn't have a pregnant stepsister in the TV show. It's that his quote-unquote dad, Phil, has actually impregnated a, a different woman. Yes. And I think that removes some of the... Because I kind of saw the sister-in-law as a bit of a representative of like, well, this is one path that yes. sometimes Indigenous, particularly Indigenous girls, may... Mm -hmm venture down and with that removed we're really only left with sarah as mm -hmm. like the option for indigenous women mm -hmm. and her thing is that she's tough and political and outspoken and explicitly interested in decolonizing yes herself and the people around her and it's an interesting shift in the tv show because jared's already quite aware of political issues he doesn't like have necessarily a strong perspective but he has some connection to his culture already he has some sense of the value of his culture which in the book sarah very much pushes him into Yes. Like he doesn't even listen to like, for example, Tribe Called Red. He's like <laughs> listening to in the first episode of Trickster, whereas in the yeah. book, she like teaches him about like indigenous hip hop. Yeah, there's a running gag that his only musical interest in the book is Nickelback. Yes. Which I thought was very like, ooh, okay. <laughs> saying a lot. Saying a lot. Bit of a critique there, Ian Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> Yeah, um, I actually found that the foregrounding of political issues in the TV show is much more explicit and mm -hmm. occasionally a little bit more on the nose. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder if that's CBC and Michelle Latimer anticipating that this is going to be consumed by a larger or largely white audience mm -hmm. and to kind of say like, hey, we're making this very explicit so that you understand what some of these issues are. Well, I think we're also three years further along in the pipeline debate from when the book was literally written. are you literally saying the pipeline debate <laughs> yeah no i am i literally am okay <laughs> sorry the ex i thought you were making an expression like oh you know this has been in the pipeline for a couple of years no no and i'm literally talking like, about pipelines. pipeline <laughs> because in the book it's more of a question mark whereas in the tv show like construction is starting and if you think about politically the decisions that have been made in the last three years that makes a lot of sense that it would be a much more present issue yeah, there's almost a joke in the third and fourth episodes when Maggie goes on a hunt to yes. find a figure from her past and she meets up with a woman in the woods. And this woman is literally collecting the signposts yes. that will mark the pathway of the pipeline and she's using them for fireworks. Yes, I love it. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. That character played by... Georgina Lightning. Thank you. Yes. Crystal oh my God. real Actual life mom. Mother. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes so much sense. Brian was watching this with me, my husband, Brian, and he was like, the casting of these two is <laughs> spot on. It makes a lot yes, of sense now. <laughs> There's a lot 
that's hard to watch yes. about this show. Like all of the trauma, all of the abuse, it's all still very, very present, even mm-hmm. though I think some of the edges have been sanded off, like the bad boyfriend and the current boyfriend have been mixed into one figure. This is the only misstep, I think, in the adaptation. Interesting. Okay. This is one of the few things we've watched that Devin actually wanted to watch with me. So he watched all four episodes with me. And we're both like, mm, episode three is the only one that's really uneven of the four, I think. It feels like a transition episode, like we're going down a different path. And Devin was like, I don't understand this Richie character. He's like, why did he go back to Richie after everything? Like, that makes no sense. And I was like, ah, yes. Well, they've combined mm. a very, very bad, violent boyfriend with just a kind of crappy boyfriend into yes. one boyfriend. And that is uneven and confusing. I think I think that's the only misstep in the in the contraction of the storytelling because Richie is confusing as a result. He almost seems... I hesitate to use such an explicit label, but he almost seems bipolar. Like sometimes he's completely fine and other times he's, you know, completely off the handle, like threatening Jared with a samurai sword. Yeah. And Jared's willingness to go back and trust him in that scene doesn't make any sense as a result. Like it's confusing. Can I just say that Richie is played by Newfoundland actor Joel Thomas Hines, who is one of the very few white people in the show? I think that's who I thought I was speaking about earlier. Oh, sorry. And I just want to mention him because he's a fantastic novelist. Oh, is he? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's won like the Winter Set and a bunch of other major awards. Hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to say about this TV show apart from the fact that I really, really freaking loved it. It's like so I went into it hoping it was going to be really good. Mm-hmm. And I think the use of musicality, the way the special effects are being incorporated mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. we haven't talked on it, but in the latter episodes, there's some flashbacks to Wade's history with a mysterious character named Georgina played by Gail Maurice. And it opened up the story. Mm -hmm. I literally have no idea where this TV show is going as a result of this different character. Like she is present in the book, but she's unnamed in a way and her relationship is less clear. Mm -hmm. The TV show is doing so many interesting things Mm -hmm. and I'm so in love with the way that these actors are playing these characters. Oh, Joel Ouellette is so good. He's so good. He's so good. I was so worried, right? Because Jared is a lot of character mm-hmm. for any young actor. So they've aged him up, like way up. He's like he's 16. not 14. Yeah. And um, he's so good. He's so nuanced. I don't know. You get this vibe that this kid has the weight of the world on his shoulders and he mm-hmm. carries it really well. He's also extremely handsome. Yeah. He's very, very Uncomfortably good. handsome. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of scenes where he takes off his top and I was like, pay attention to the story. (laughs) I will say it's incredibly important in the book, but seeing it come alive with actors, the relationship between Jared and Maggie in the TV show is hugely compelling. And I think Crystal Lightning is doing such careful, Mm -hmm. complicated work. Yes. You can tell immediately that Maggie is a terrible mother and Mm -hmm. she's a bad adult figure. Like she's just making all of these mistakes. Mm -hmm. But you also know that she desperately loves Jared and that she is so fiercely protective of him. Like the series actually opens with the story of how she protected Jared from Wade Mm -hmm. by killing Wade with a scream, like an anguished motherly scream. 
I mean, praise Michelle Latimer because it's such a fantastic way to open this series, but also it immediately communicates the level of love that Maggie has for Jared. Yes, and the matriarchal power in Mm -hmm. the witchcraft that has been, as we see over the four episodes, that matriarchal power has been really unsettled by settler colonialism, right? Like the ability of these women to protect, to bond with their children has been entirely upended by the residential schools system Mm -hmm. and the trauma that it has left behind. And when you get these moments where Maggie gets to sort of, I don't know, be in full flight in her motherhood, it's, they're like amazing. Yeah. She's violent and scary and simultaneously deeply lovable. (laughs) Just Mm -hmm. really, I think she's phenomenal. Dev said to me, he's like, wow, she's really playing that role well. Yeah. Especially the scenes where she's wrestling with the voices that she hears. I don't know. She's just, she's infinitely believable. It's not overdone. I, I was really impressed. Like, I think Maggie and Jared are fantastic together and just inspired casting in those choices. Yeah. Like, I know that Joel Ouellette is a relatively new mm-hmm. actor. He's been in commercials and done stuff since he was a little boy. But, like, this is obviously a huge breakout for him. Mm-hmm. I don't know a ton about the other members of the cast. So Crystal Lightning is a DJ. What? Yes. <laughs> That is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> she's an electro house DJ, and she's in like a electronica collective called Lightning Cloud. Oh, fascinating! Okay. Yes, yes, and um, I don't know. I just when I read that, I was like, "Yeah, Checks no, I out. can see it." Yep, yep. <laughs> I really like her. We should probably think about wrapping up soon. Yeah, I know. Okay, the only thing I want to talk about, and it's the only criticism that I have in an otherwise visually stunning show. Okay. Joe, the birds are bad. The birds are not great. (laughs) You watch more of this stuff than I do, because I was like, these birds are really bad. And Dev was like, I mean, birds are hard. That's fine. The hardest one was some of the bird feather transformations on human beings where sometimes it looks okay and sometimes it looks a touch janky. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I'm thinking of the scene where like Wade transforms into the bird and flies at, Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess it's Georgina Georgina. in the the hallway. And I was like, oh, this bird is really bad. Yeah. And Devin was like, you know, in the first season of Game of Thrones, the wolves looked really janky. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So people who watch more of this than I do are fine with it, is what I took from that conversation. (laughs) Exactly. Particularly when you're thinking, okay, this is still on a CBC budget. So we're probably talking, it's not going to be several millions of dollars per episode, although it might be like one to two. Yeah. Yeah. I think all things considered, this adaptation is great. It's surprising in a lot of ways. So even if you've read the book and then you watch this TV show, you won't really... No, I think especially if you've read the book, it's really surprising. Because <laughs> I kept being like, wait, what? And Devin was like, what do you mean? That makes perfect sense. And I was like, yeah, no, I know, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, but this isn't how it happens. <laughs> yeah, to the point where I almost wondered, is this from book two? And we're just yeah. bringing it forward. Yeah, but I don't think she sold the rights to book two. So I don't think so. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I am going to read book two, though, obviously. Right. <laughs> <laughs> From what I know, this is not intended to be a limited series, so I do think that if it goes off well, the plans are afoot to make subsequent seasons. So Canadian listeners, watch it. Watch it on Gem. Watch it on TV. Watch it. Yeah. Watch it. And (laughs) international viewers, keep an eye out for this. Yeah. 
I don't want to be hyperbolic and be like, oh, this is truly something special, but it feels like the kind of storytelling on a grand scale that we're not seeing for Indigenous stories. Agreed. It's the kind of thing where you could say, oh, like, if you don't want to watch conventional, and again, I'm using air quotes, if you don't want to watch conventional stories about Indigenous life, this Mm -hmm. is, I think, a sweet spot where people can still get important storytelling, but in a way that is more palatable for genre fans or YA fans. And I did read a Twitter rumor that in the wake of its debut at Toronto International Film Festival, there are deals in the works with both the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and the BBC. It totally makes sense. It has a lot of distinctive Canadian flavor. And like, if you know the geography of BC, it helps because Mm -hmm. you'll have an understanding of like where this town is located. Although P.S. it was shot in North Bay, Ontario. Oh, was it really? Yeah, they did a couple day shooting in actual Kitimat, which is Mm -hmm. where the story is set. And that's where Eden Robinson specifically locates the book. Mm -hmm. But then yeah, weirdly enough, I think it must have been like a tax credit. Totally. But yeah, most of the series was shot in North Bay. Oh, interesting. Dev and I had this big debate about it because Dev was like, this looks like Ontario sometimes. And I was like, yeah. no, they totally showed it, shot it all on camera <laughs> based Both on right. nothing. You're based right. on just I have to disagree with people. I think they must have done some big aerial shots mm-hmm. because it's very distinctively BC. But like the actual shots within town, like the buildings and stuff, I was like, mm-hmm. this has the look of a small town Ontario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. can see that. Yeah. All this to say, well worth your time. And I really hope you check it out. Please do. It's fantastic. It's, it is worth your time and it's worth supporting. Yeah. 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 Uh, so why a bingo? Bingo! Not a good bingo. Why a bingo? So we're still building out the new board. Yeah. So feel free to check anything that we may already have, but you also get to add two squares. And okay. oh, before you add, just going to give a quick shout out. So our constant listener and write-in friend, Andrew, has added a square, and that is hollow friendships or romances. So texts or films or TV shows that have a friendship or a romance, but they seem like they're not actually interested in putting in the work. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, we should also thank Twitter handle I can read from Miles for helping to soften out the edges of diversity flip, which shall now be referred to as inclusion flip. Oh, that's way better. So much better. This is why we have listeners. <laughs> and then our final new square was added by at Rise Indigo, who is actually a former student of mine. And oh! he added in coincidental classes. So whenever we see people studying things in school that happens to be related to exactly what's happening within their lives. So like you're reading Romeo and Juliet, and then you're a member of a star-crossed love affair. This is literally one of my favorite things. And it's, it's a good uh, literally every episode of Boy Meets World. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's a great square to add. So happy with all of those. And thank you so much, people. We are still looking to add to the board. So if you have any additional recommendations, hit us up. Okay. I know what I'm adding. Okay. What have you got? I'm adding aged up. Oh, okay. Not mm-hmm. where I thought you were going to go. And I'm adding filmed in and then in brackets, the territory now known as Canada. <laughs> Wow. Yep. Because that fits on a square nicely, Brenna. I know. Well, I don't make the square. Wow. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're pretty pleased with yourself. I'm happy for you. <laughs> Maybe we'll workshop that one too then. <laughs> okay. I'm going to add the old classic abuse. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Welcome back, abuse. Welcome back, abuse. We barely missed you. And I'm also going to add in magic or supernatural. Right on. Yeah. I like it. I loved this, Joe. I'm glad we did it. And I'm really glad I've found a kind of area of the spooky and spectacular that I actually can really enjoy. Well, that's great, Brenna, because mm-hmm. I'm going to take you slightly out of your comfort zone for our next full-length book. Yeah. Which is actually not a full-length book, so I'm making it a little easier for you. Okay. We're going to dip into Stephen King territory. Uh-oh. We're going to read his short story, The Body, which was oh. then adapted into seminal young boy YA film, Stand By Me. Oh! Yeah. See, I took it easy on you. I could have gone like something really scary and hard. And instead I was like, okay, well, let's do like a coming of age narrative that just happens to have a dead body at the middle of it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. our our next full length episode coming up in two weeks. And then next week, we're going to focus on... So next week's going to be a more traditional mini-sode, a little bit of homework, a little bit of listener mail. And then Joe and I are going to dig into some important figures in the world of YA and do like kind of mini deep dives, right, Joe? Yeah, we're going to take a couple people and put their careers into focus. Mm -hmm. And we haven't exactly decided who we're going to do. So Mm -hmm. it's a bit of a mystery. Keep an eye out for that. (laughs) (laughs) Got to keep you folks coming back somehow. So if you want to add some squares to the bingo board or send in some listener mail, um, you can find us on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSpod. And I'm Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, where do they find you? I am at B still my remote and that's the letter B. And if you've got something longer, of course, it's HKHSpod at gmail.com. So until next time. I hope everybody's looking after themselves. This thing just keeps dragging on, but we got this. Uh, I'll see you on the page. I'll see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.